Good evening. Police make an arrest in Minnesota in the investigation that led to the death of Amir Locke during a police raid using a no-knock warrant, while daily protests again rock a city where George Floyd was killed by a former officer now in prison. Governor Kathy Hochul makes it official no more mask mandate in the state except in schools and a few other locations. And a homeless tent city is evicted in Tompkins Square Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, February 10th, 2022. Last night, hundreds of demonstrators again took to the streets of Minneapolis to protest the death of a black man at the hands of a police SWAT team. 22-year-old Amir Locke was shot and killed earlier this month, killed as he hid under a blanket after being awakened by cops who busted into his house using a no-knock warrant. When we come out here and when we protest and when we pull up, that the only way things are going to get done is by upping the pressure. Locke was asleep on a couch when the SWAT team stormed the apartment on February 2nd. Police body camera video shows Locke still wrapped in a blanket, holding what appears to be a gun just before Minneapolis police officer Mark Hanneman fired his weapon and struck Locke. Locke's family said he was staying at the address, but officials have confirmed his name wasn't on the warrants that police were serving. Minneapolis police said Locke was shot after he pointed his gun in the direction of the officers, but Locke's family has questioned that. Amir's parents, Karen Wells, and Andre Locke spoke at a rally earlier this week. How many of you guys have sons of y'all? Can, let me see a raise of hands. Put yourselves in our shoes. How does that feel to know that your son is sleeping comfortably in a safe place, peacefully? And someone takes it upon themselves to choose who lives and who dies. He was born and raised in the Twin Cities. He was planning on coming back to Dallas, Texas, where I'm currently at, where he was living as well, to work on and pursue many goals that he had planned. But on 2-2-22, it was taken away from him. Never in a million years would I have ever imagined that my son, Amir, who is born and raised in the Twin Cities, law-abiding citizen, did everything he was supposed to do, was raised with moral and values, loved by so many, Everybody that came in contact with him, he had a beautiful spirit and a beautiful smile. Never would I have imagined that I would be standing up here talking about the execution of my son by the Minneapolis Police Department. Mm -hmm. I didn't think my, my son, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen too many times, too many times. 
Amir's teenage cousin, Mekki Camden-Speed, was arrested in southeastern Minnesota on Tuesday. He's being accused of an unrelated homicide. Speed was living with his mother in a different unit of the same apartment complex. The no-knock warrant was signed by a judge the day before the raid, before a suspect had been named in the investigation. A no-knock warrant is a kind of search warrant that allows police to enter a building without notifying the occupants. A tactic that came into prominence in the 1970s as drug dealers were said to be flushing their stash as cops warned they were at the door. But No Knock comes with its own set of problems. In 2020, an ER technician, Brianna Taylor, was killed by police in Louisville, Kentucky. The cops claimed they announced their presence, but no one heard as police entered the apartment. A gun battle ensued as the residents had no idea they were cops and Taylor was killed. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey vowed to end the use of no-knock warrants, placing a moratorium on the practice except under special circumstances. He also criticized state law in Minnesota that allows police to withhold body camera footage. Our city has been through a lot. The pain that we've been experiencing on a weekly, if not daily basis, is only compounded by the complexities of the circumstances that we face. That's something that I've been grappling with every day, and I know people in our city have as well. Now, in grappling with it and having some of these hard discussions that we need to have, one of the first steps that is necessary is transparency, good, bad, or ugly. And in achieving transparency, uh, it's essential, and it was essential in this case, that we release the body-worn camera footage. Uh, I do want to make sure that you understand the considerations that are in place when we release body-worn camera footage and making sure that we're transparent every step of the way. Uh, First, uh, prior to releasing the footage, we want to make sure that the family that is grieving has an opportunity to see it first. That is a non-negotiable for me. Second, about a year ago, we instituted a policy in place uh, that prohibited officers involved in a critical incident from reviewing body-worn camera footage prior to giving a statement. Now, that policy in some instances is in fact trumped by the state law. The state law says that body-worn camera footage is private or non-public unless one of several exceptions are met. Those exceptions are somewhat arbitrary and in general are to be, determined, be, to be determined by local elected officials. The state law should be changed so that there is more clarity, there is more transparency, and people throughout our city know what to expect with regards to its release. And that is Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry at a news conference with Fry and his police chief and activist Nakima Levy Armstrong interrupted to express the frustration of the black community in Minneapolis. We all know these events happen very rapidly, and as there's a gun emerging in your direction, you're forced to make a split-second decision um, about when it's, when it's a threat. Yeah. Chief, Chief, Chief Huffman, Huffman. No, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Chief Huffman, no, no, do not. Okay, I'm not a threat. I don't have a gun. Okay? Don't treat me like I'm a threat. This is what I would call the anatomy of a cover-up. This is unacceptable. I'm sorry. It is. When I agreed to work with you on the work group, we talked about the importance of transparency and accountability. And here, what we are seeing is business as usual. And you know this, Amelia. You know this, Jacob. I don't know how you guys slept that night. I couldn't sleep at night. Tears from a mother's perspective, thinking about what happened. I saw the picture of Amir, he looks like a boy. 
My son is 17 years old. He has slept on his friend's couches for sleepovers. So we cannot sit here and whitewash this and pretend that it's okay. You knew that I was not gonna stand for police violence and a push for accountability, yet you asked me to be a part of the work group and I knew what I thought I was signed up for. This isn't what I signed up for. I understand if you're not comfortable having me continue to co-chair, that's your prerogative. I signed up to help bring recommendations because we're tired of being killed. We're tired of the cover-ups. We're tired of the excuses. And to hide behind the St. Paul Police Department, the deadliest police force in the state of Minnesota is unacceptable. You all had no business agreeing to carry out a, a warrant, and now you're claiming that's part of their investigation. You don't know. Well, why the hell did you all sign up to do this in the first place? There was a homicide that happened at one something in the morning on Hennepin Avenue. Someone was killed, and then the person drove away in a black SUV. They're still at large in Minneapolis, potentially a threat to residents. But you all go do something for St. Paul police, and now you're trying to hide behind that decision. It's not acceptable. We are ready for change. When the people voted to reelect you, Jacob, they not only showed that they wanted to see a new leader, right? Not saying you're not the person who got reelected, you got reelected. But what they were expecting is a new beginning. That's why they gave you more power and authority. So that is what we want to see as the residents of Minneapolis. We don't want to see cover-ups. We don't want to see whitewashing. People are asking very simple questions that have still not been answered. People have put their lives on the line because we're ready for change. So we're expecting from this point forward for you guys to do something different. I'm not playing. We're not here for it. We're not here for it. I'm only committed to working on this work group if you all are committed to being honest and transparent and not covering up the bull****. Community activist Nakima Levy-Armstrong. Minneapolis police assist no-knock warrants are safer to the police and the public, and they say they're necessary to prevent the, quote, loss, destruction, and removal of the objects of the search. Another war on drugs. In another story of a possible cover-up of an investigation of the death of a black man at the hands of Louisiana state troopers in 2019, Louisiana House Speaker Republican Representative Clay Shexnader declared no cover-up will be tolerated into the deadly arrest of black motorist Ronald Green. Cover-up and transparency are flip sides of the same coin. Governor John Bell Edwards was informed within hours that troopers arresting Green engaged in a violent, lengthy struggle. Yet he kept quiet for two years as state police told a much different story to the victim's family and in official reports that Green died from a crash after a high-speed chase. Shexnayer said in a statement, these events have raised serious questions regarding who knew what and when. The story broke when the Associated Press published a photo that showed a severely bloodied Green being held up by cops. He looks like he might have already passed. AP says Green's death is part of a pattern of state police violence shrouded in secrecy. And in more national news, abortions in Texas fell by 60 percent in the first month after the most restrictive abortion law in the United States in decades. The nearly 2,200 abortions reported by Texas providers in September came after a new law took effect that bans the procedure, usually around six weeks of pregnancy and without ex 
without exception for rape or incest. In August, there had been more than 5,400 abortions statewide. Since the United States Supreme Court has allowed the restrictions to stay in place, some Texas patients have been traveling hundreds of miles to clinics in neighboring states or farther, causing a backlog of appointments in those places. Planned Parenthood issued a statement calling the numbers the very beginning of the devastating impact of the law. Under the Texas abortion law, any private citizen is entitled to collect $10,000 or more if they bring a successful lawsuit against someone who performed or helped a woman obtain an abortion after the limit, which opponents have condemned as a bounty. So far, no anti-abortion supporters have filed any lawsuits. And with the most recent numbers showing raging inflation not seen since the early 1980s, a stymied President Joe Biden tried to shift attention to policies he says would cut prescription drug prices and make life more affordable for families. His pitch, delivered at a community college in Culpeper, Virginia, came on the heels of a dire inflation report released earlier in the day. Consumer prices jumped 7.5 percent over the year ending in January as the sources of inflation had broadened on a monthly basis with increases in the the cost of rent, electricity, clothes, and household furnishings. Biden was introduced by Joshua Davis, a 12-year-old with type 1 diabetes who depends on affordable insulin. I'm a 12-year-old boy. It helps that my dad also has type 1 diabetes. He's truly my hero for showing me how to live with type 1 diabetes. I'm thankful that insulin was invented because it is my life support. I don't have a choice whether or not to use it. I lead a very active life and I don't let type 1 slow me down. I'm thankful that my parents do what they can to make sure I have insulin. Thank you so much to Congresswoman Spanberger and President Biden for all they're doing to make sure I will be able to continue to live safely and actively with affordable insulin. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the President of the United States, President Biden. Thank you, Mr. President. I could have no more have done that when I was 12 years old than fly. I used to be a stutter. I was scared to death. I would stand up and t- 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 talk, talk like that. And I can't tell you how much, how proud I am of you. And your brother is equally as impressive as you are. He's standing there, he's sit- sitting there two seats over. Shannon and Joshua, I want you to know that lowering the cost of prescription drugs is one of the reasons why I'm here with Abigail, your congresswoman. And that's what I want to talk about with you today. Lowering the cost of health care overall as well. Lowering the cost of prescription drugs is important. And giving families like yours just a little bit more breathing room makes a gigantic difference. And that is the... Uh President of the United States earlier today. Inflation poses a triple threat for Biden going into this year's midterm elections. Prices at a 40-year peak have dimmed his public support and endangered his policy agenda, while efforts by the Federal Reserve to curb inflation could meaningfully slow the strong economic growth that has been a highlight of his first year. 
And in news spanning North America's largest undefended border, the Biden administration urged Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government today to use its federal powers to end the truck blockade by Canadians protesting the country's COVID-19 restrictions. Canada is America's number one trading partner. The president's request comes as bumper-to-bumper demonstrations forced auto plants on both sides of the border to shut back, shut down, or scale back production. Calling the protests a freedom convoy, Canadian truckers have closed the Ambassador Bridge linking Detroit and Ontario, a major international crossing, and truckers have nearly shut down Canada's capital city of Ottawa. 20 arrests and charges, criminal arrests and charges of individuals who have broken the law directly or indirectly in regards to this this demonstration. We've issued over 500 tickets to those individuals who've come here, mostly in conveyances, trucks, SUVs, cars, for unlawful conduct, bylaws, provincial offences and criminal code offences. I am from the south shore of Montreal. Uh, I came here in Ottawa because uh, I want my freedoms back. I feel that we have uh, we have taken our freedoms away. They were tired of, of his of our prime minister's non-presence. We we would like to talk to this man because this man is supposed to be with us, not against us. We have the feeling that he's a bit against us. We should say we don't we don't care vax no vax unvax. We we just don't want the passports anymore. We don't we just don't want to be segregated. We just we want to be free. We want to be with all our people. Uh, I know people who've had carbon monoxide detectors going off and buildings evacuated because of the truck fumes going on the occupied streets. There's been ambulance and fire routes blocked off. And what might be more noticeable than anything else is that a lot of the businesses in the busiest part of Ottawa have had to remain closed for over a week. I don't think siege is actually the wrong word because they are quite literally holding the downtown hostage. Uh, it may not be the most violent siege people imagine, uh, people can imagine, but they are holding downtown Ottawa's economy hostage. Uh, they are holding the livelihood of the residents that live here hostage. It's- Meanwhile, the United States braced for the possibility of similar truck-borne protests inspired by the Canadians, and authorities in Paris and Belgium banned road blockades to head off disruptions there, too. And here in New York City, unvaccinated city workers will lose their jobs Friday when the city reaches its deadline for municipal employees to either get immunized against COVID-19 or lose their jobs. Fewer than 4,000 of the city's nearly 400,000 municipal employees stand to lose their jobs, according to the city. Mayor Eric Adams said he would go through with the terminations following rules set months earlier during the previous administration. We're not firing them. People are quitting, Adams said at a news conference. The responsibility is clear. Currently, all but three city agencies, the Department of Corrections, the Police Department, and New York City Housing Authority have rates of vaccination above 90 percent. Adams said he wanted any workers facing termination Friday due to their vaccination status to stay, but that allowing them to keep their jobs wouldn't be fair to workers who got vaccinated. Meanwhile, yesterday, New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced it would today would be the last day of most Uh, state mandates for wearing a face mask in most situations. Now it's up to private businesses to require masks or not. The declining cases, given declining hospitalizations, that is why we feel comfortable to lift this in effect tomorrow. And I want to thank all the businesses and the county leaders and the health departments in places as far away as Erie County uh, who did the right thing to help us get through this. I believe this has made a huge difference, and it gives also patrons of businesses the comfort to know that they are safe when they went into these stores during our most vulnerable time, and we saw those numbers 
literally off the charts. And now those numbers are coming down and it is time to adapt. However, we want to make sure that every business knows this is your prerogative. And individuals who want to continue wearing masks, continue wearing masks. And I suspect when I walk the streets of New York City, as I often do, I'm still going to see a lot of people wearing masks because they will feel safer. And then Governor Hochul uh, says there are big, but there are, pardon me, there are big loopholes in the governor's order, the biggest being schools. So let's talk about some places where it's still in effect. We are still going to continue for now the requirement at state regulated health care facilities. I think that's very obvious of why we want to make sure our health care facilities are safe. That would be adult care facilities, nursing homes, correctional facilities, schools and child care centers. And I'll be talking about that in a minute homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, as well as bus and train stations. Um, The federal government regulates the airports, the airplanes and trains like Amtrak. So that is still under their jurisdiction. It is not over. After consulting with all these people, part of that whole education ecosystem, we decided that the safest way for the students, the teachers, the administrators, everyone who's part of that system, the safest way for them to return to school was to have a mask requirement. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul, across the nation, many localities are, fo- fa- are, are following New York's lead. The state of New Jersey ended its ban even earlier, while the mega casinos of Las Vegas have also ended their mask mandates. Nevertheless, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has not changed its recommendation that people mask up in indoor public settings in areas where there's high transmission. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky with, uh, said that with possible new variants of COVID still lurking, it's too early to say we're out of the woods. Our CDC guidance has not changed. Um, we have and continue to recommend um, masking in areas of high and substantial transmission. That is essentially everywhere in the country in public indoor settings. We continue to recommend universal masking in our schools. Um, and so our guidance has not changed. And what I will say is in this current moment, I'm pleased to say that about 96% of our children are in schools and that the masking has allowed them to be in school safely. That and getting our children vaccinated. Um, I know people are cautiously optimistic. I am cautiously optimistic about watching our cases come down, and they've come down quite a bit. But we're still at 290,000 cases a day. We still have hospitalization rates that are higher than they ever were during the peak of our Delta wave. And similarly for deaths, still at 2,300 a day. So while we are working hard to get out of this crisis mode, we do need to look downfield to see what uh, living with COVID outside of crisis will look like. And closer to home, reportedly, despite growing pressure ease restrictions, President Joe Biden is waiting for fresh guidance from federal health officials. Meanwhile, closer to home, New York City Mayor Eric Adams today created the Office of Faith-Based Community Partnership. The office created with the signing of an executive order by Adams will be led by Pastor Guilford Monrose, who will serve as a conduit between city government and faith-based communities throughout the New York City, throughout New York City and nonprofit organizations. Mayor Adams, God could have allowed you to be born at any other time, but he said, I need my best for the worst time. Let's meet the moment with what we prepared ourselves. There is no other time I know in history when you want to be a person of faith, but you cannot do it merely in the sterilized environment of your religious institutions. 
You have to go into the streets. Because the religious philosophers and the religious leaders and those who came before you, they did not stay with inside the confines of their four walls. We want to end gun violence. Let's go into the street and talk to those young men that are pulling the triggers. We want to end the homelessness crisis. Let's mobilize and go into the subway systems and nurture and pray for those who are looking for some way out. You can't be just a rabbi. You can't be just a cop. You can't be just a doctor. You got to go beyond that and give justice to people who are in need. This is the moment to go beyond who we are and move to the level of who we can become. God put us here for a purpose and we should be ready for that. And yes, there would be criticisms. There'd be those who would critique us. But let's be clear. Lions don't lose sleep over the opinion of his sheep. <laughs> be the lion. Be the lion and the lioness. <laughs> Meanwhile, that was Mayor Adams. Meanwhile, across the city in Tompkins Square Park, which is known as a place where homeless people often congregate, parks officials and police closed down an encampment of homeless people who had been living in a number of tents in the park. A homeless person argued with a parks department officer as the tent was ripped down and thrown into a waiting garbage can, garbage truck. Yo, we've been going to shit. We get treated like by everybody. Tell them to go themselves. Well, if they can't deal with us, you're the homeless, they're with us. Who the ones to deal with this shit, man? I was there when he lied to him. I was humble, man. I was humble when he was with him in the cold. You guys going to 30th Street? I'm not going to 30th Street. That's right to the fucking prison. I told him. He knows. I told him. There's other agencies, but he works for them. All right. right? So, you're not here every day. Huh? You're not well, here. I'm here every day. Yes, yes. Oh, because I'm over there on 9th Street. I'm over there on their side. You're on 9th Street. over there. A homeless advocate named Ramza described what led up to the demise of Tent City. Yeah, there were uh, some homeless people camping on the, on the lawn here. They uh, told the one group of people inside the tent that if they claimed this property right there and didn't let them throw it out, that they would be arrested. The gentleman inside named Rashid did not want to leave his tent. He's an older man. I think he just had surgery or something. You know, he has health issues. He didn't want to leave his tent. He said that his tent. Eventually, they dragged him out. So he had his knee in the back and all that. And they put handcuffs on him. First, they tried to say that he was going to the hospital. That's what I heard. And then, um, then they also said, I had to ask them, you know, is he being arrested? And, and he said, what do you say? And that was a scene in Tompkins Square Park. You might remember back in 1988, in the summer of 1988, police tried to evict the tent city that led to a riot, often called a police riot, uh, that led to over 120 people being injured and a tent city that took over that park for over three years. And that's some of the news for Thursday, February 10th, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thank you.